Part two, chapter seven, section four of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Part two, chapter seven, section four. The Capataz never checked his speed. At the head of the wharf, vague figures with rifles leapt to the head of his horse. Others closed upon him, cargadores of the company, posted by Captain Mitchell on the watch. At a word from him they fell back with subservient murmurs, recognizing his voice. At the other end of the jetty, near a cargo crane, in a dark group with glowing cigars, his name was pronounced in a tone of relief. Most of the Europeans in Sulaco were there, rallied round Charles Gould, as if the silver of the mine had been the emblem of a common cause, the symbol of the supreme importance of material interests. They had loaded it into the lighter with their own hands, Nostromo recognized Don Carlos Gould, a thin, tall shape standing a little apart and silent, to whom another tall shape, the engineer-in-chief, said aloud, If it must be lost, it is a million times better that it should go to the bottom of the sea. Martin Decoux called out from the lighter, Au revoir, messieurs, till we clasp hands again over the new-born Occidental Republic. Only a subdued murmur responded to his clear, ringing tones, and then it seemed to him that the wharf was floating away into the night. But it was Nostromo, who was already pushing against a pile with one of the heavy sweeps. Decoud did not move. The effect was that of being launched into space. After a splash or two there was not a sound but the thud of Nostromo's feet, leaping about the boat. He hoisted the big sail. A breath of wind fanned Decoud's cheek. Everything had vanished, but the light of the lantern Captain Mitchell had hoisted upon the post at the end of the jetty to guide Nostromo out of the harbour. The two men, unable to see each other, kept silent till the lighter, slipping before the fitful breeze, passed out between almost invisible headlands into the still deeper darkness of the gulf. For a time the lantern of the jetty shone after them. The wind failed, then fanned up again, but so faintly that the big, half-decked boat slipped along with no more noise than if she had been suspended in the air. "'We are out in the gulf now,' said the calm voice of Nostromo. A moment after, he added, Senor Mitchell has lowered the light. Yes, said Decoud, nobody can find us now. A great recrudescence of obscurity embraced the boat. The sea in the gulf was as black as the clouds above. Nostromo, after striking a couple of matches to get a glimpse of the boat compass he had with him in the lighter, steered by the feel of the wind on his cheek. 
It was a new experience for Decoud, this mysteriousness of the great waters spread out strangely smooth, as if their restlessness had been crushed by the weight of that dense night. The Placido was sleeping profoundly under its black poncho. The main thing now for success was to get away from the coast and gain the middle of the gulf before day broke. The Isabels were somewhere at hand. "'On your left, as you look forward, senor,' said Nostromo suddenly. When his voice ceased, the enormous stillness, without light or sound, seemed to affect Decoud's senses like a powerful drug. He didn't even know at times whether he were asleep or awake. Like a man lost in slumber, he heard nothing. He saw nothing. Even his hand held before his face did not exist for his eyes. The change from the agitation, the passions and the dangers, from the sights and sounds of the shore, was so complete that it would have resembled death had it not been for the survival of his thoughts. In this foretaste of eternal peace they floated vivid and light, like unearthly clear dreams of earthly things that may haunt the souls freed by death from the misty atmosphere of regrets and hopes. Decoud shook himself, shuddered a bit, though the air that drifted past him was warm. He had the strangest sensation of his soul having just returned into his body from the circumambient darkness in which land, sea, sky, the mountains and the rocks were as if they had not been. Nostromo's voice was speaking, though he, at the tiller, was also as if he were not. "'Have you been asleep, Don Martin? Caramba! If it were possible, I would think that I, too, have dozed off. I have a strange notion, somehow, of having dreamt that there was a sound of blubbering, a sound a sorrowing man could make, somewhere near this boat, something between a sigh and a sob.' "'Strange,' muttered Dikou stretched upon the pile of treasure-boxes covered by many tarpaulins. Could it be that there is another boat near us in the gulf? We could not see it, you know. Nostromo laughed a little at the absurdity of the idea. They dismissed it from their minds. The solitude could almost be felt, and when the breeze ceased, the blackness seemed to weigh upon Decoud like a stone. This is overpowering, he muttered. Do we move at all, Capataz? Not so fast as a crawling beetle tangled in the grass, answered Nostromo, and his voice seemed deadened by the thick veil of obscurity that felt warm and hopeless all about them. There were long periods when he made no sound, invisible and inaudible, as if he had mysteriously stepped out of the lighter. In the featureless night, Nostromo was not even certain which way the lighter headed after the wind had completely died out. He peered for the islands. There was not a hint of them to be seen, as if they had sunk to the bottom of the gulf. He threw himself down by the side of Decoud at last, 
and whispered into his ear that if daylight caught them near the Sulaco shore through want of wind, it would be possible to sweep the lighter behind the cliff at the high end of the great Isabel, where she would lie concealed. Decoud was surprised at the grimness of his anxiety. To him the removal of the treasure was a political move. It was necessary for several reasons that it should not fall into the hands of Montero. But here was a man who took another view of this enterprise. The caballeros over there did not seem to have the slightest idea of what they had given him to do. Nostromo, as if affected by the gloom around, seemed nervously resentful. Decoud was surprised. The capataz, indifferent to those dangers that seemed obvious to his companion, allowed himself to become scornfully exasperated by the deadly nature of the trust put, as a matter of course, into his hands. It was more dangerous, Nostromo said, with a laugh and a curse, than sending a man to get the treasure that people said was guarded by devils and ghosts in the deep ravines of Azuera. Senor, he said, we must catch the steamer at sea. We must keep out in the open, looking for her, till we have eaten and drunk all that has been put on board here. And if we miss her by some mischance, we must keep away from the land, till we grow weak, and perhaps mad, and die and drift dead, until one or another of the steamers of the Compania comes upon the boat with the two dead men who have saved the treasure. That, senor, is the only way to save it. For, don't you see, for us to come to the land anywhere in a hundred miles along this coast with this silver in our possession is to run the naked breast against the point of a knife. This thing has been given to me like a deadly disease. If men discover it, I am dead, and you too, senor, since you would come with me. There is enough silver to make a whole province rich, let alone a seaboard pueblo inhabited by thieves and vagabonds. Senor, they would think that heaven itself sent these riches into their hands, and would cut our throats without hesitation. I would trust no fair words from the best men around the shores of this wild gulf. Reflect that, even by giving up the treasure at the first demand, we would not be able to save our lives. Do you understand this, or must I explain? No, you needn't explain, said Decoud, a little listlessly. I can see it well enough myself, that the possession of this treasure is very much like a deadly disease for men situated as we are. But it had to be removed from Sulaco, and you were the man for the task. I was, but I cannot believe, said Nostromo, that its loss would have impoverished Don Carlos' gold very much. There is more wealth in the mountain. I have heard it rolling down the chutes on quiet nights, when I used to ride to Rincon to see a certain girl, after my work at the harbour was done. For years the rich rocks have been pouring down with a noise like thunder, and the miners say that there is enough at the heart of the mountain to thunder on for years and years to come. And yet, the day before yesterday, we have been fighting to save it from the mob, 
and to-night I am sent out with it into this darkness, where there is no wind to get away with, as if it were the last lot of silver on earth to get bread for the hungry with. <laughs> well, I am going to make it the most famous and desperate affair of my life. Wind or no wind, it shall be talked about when the little children are grown up, and the grown men are old. Aha! The Monterists must not get hold of it, I am told. Whatever happens to Nostromo, the Capataz, and they shall not have it, I tell you, since it has been tied for safety round Nostromo's neck. I see it, murmured Decoud. He saw, indeed, that his companion had his own peculiar view of this enterprise. Nostromo interrupted his reflections upon the way men's qualities are made use of, without any fundamental knowledge of their nature, by the proposal they should slip the long oars out, and sweep the lighter in the direction of the Isabels. It wouldn't do for daylight to reveal the treasure floating within a mile or so of the harbour entrance. The denser the darkness generally, the smarter were the puffs of wind on which he had reckoned to make his way. But to-night the gulf, under its poncho of clouds, remained breathless, as if dead rather than asleep. Don Martin's soft hands suffered cruelly, tugging at the thick handle of the enormous oar. He stuck to it manfully, setting his teeth. He, too, was in the toils of an imaginative existence. And that strange work of pulling a lighter seemed to belong naturally to the inception of a new state, acquired an ideal meaning from his love for Antonia. For all their efforts, the heavily laden lighter hardly moved. Nostromo could be heard swearing to himself between the regular splashes of the sweeps. We are making a crooked path, he muttered to himself. I wish I could see the islands. In his unskilfulness, Don Martin overexerted himself. Now and then a sort of muscular faintness would run from the tips of his aching fingers through every fibre of his body and pass off in a flush of heat. He had fought, talked, suffered mentally and physically, exerting his mind and body for the last forty-eight hours without intermission. He had had no rest, very little food, no pause in the stress of his thoughts and his feelings. Even his love for Antonia, whence he drew his strength and his inspiration, had reached the point of tragic tension during their hurried interview by Don Jose's bedside. And now, suddenly, he was thrown out of all this into a dark gulf, whose very gloom, silence, and breathless peace added a torment to the necessity for physical exertion. He imagined the lighter sinking to the bottom with an extraordinary shudder of delight. I am on the verge of delirium, he thought. He mastered the trembling of all his limbs, of his breast, the inward trembling of all his body exhausted of its nervous force. Shall we rest, Capataz? he proposed in a careless tone. There are many hours of night yet before us. 
True. It is but a mile or so, I suppose. Rest your arms, senor, if that is what you mean. You will find no other sort of rest, I can promise you, since you let yourself be bound to this treasure, whose loss would make no poor man poorer. No, senor, there is no rest till we find a northbound steamer. Or else some ship finds us drifting about, stretched out dead upon the Englishman's silver. Or rather, no, por Dios, I shall cut down the gunwale with the axe right to the water's edge before thirst and hunger rob me of my strength. By all the saints and devils, I shall let the sea have the treasure rather than give it up to any stranger. Since it was the good pleasure of the caballeros to send me off to such an errand, they shall learn I am just the man they take me for. Decoux lay on the silver boxes, panting. All his active sensations and feelings, from as far back as he could remember, seemed to him the maddest of dreams. Even his passionate devotion to Antonia, into which he had worked himself up out of the depths of his scepticism, had lost all appearance of reality. For a moment he was the prey of an extremely languid but not unpleasant indifference. "'I am sure they didn't mean you to take such a desperate view of this affair,' he said. "'What was it then, a joke?' snarled the man, who on the pay-sheets of the OSN Company's establishment in Sulaco was described as foreman of the wharf, against the figure of his wages. Was it for a joke they woke me up from my sleep after two days of street fighting to make me stake my life upon a bad card? Everybody knows, too, that I am not a lucky gambler. Yes, everybody knows your good luck with women, Capataz, Decoux propitiated his companion in a weary drawl. Look here, senor, Nostromo went on. I never even remonstrated about this affair. Directly I heard what was wanted, I saw what a desperate affair it must be, and I made up my mind to see it out. Every minute was of importance. I had to wait for you first. Then we arrived at the Italia Una. Old Giorgio shouted to me to go for the English doctor. Later on, that poor dying woman wanted to see me, as you know. Senor, I was reluctant to go. I felt already this cursed silver growing heavy upon my back, and I was afraid that, knowing herself to be dying, she would ask me to ride off again for a priest. Father Corbelan, who is fearless, would have come at a word, but Father Corbelan is far away, safe with the band of Hernandez, and the populace, that would have liked to tear him to pieces, are much incensed against the priests. Not a single fat padre would have consented to put his head out of his hiding-place to-night to save a Christian soul, except perhaps under my protection. That was in her mind. I pretended I did not believe she was going to die. Senor, I refused to fetch a priest for a dying woman. Decoux was heard to stir. You did, Capataz he exclaimed. His tone changed. Well, you know, it was rather fine. 
You do not believe in priests, Don Martin? Neither do I. What was the use of wasting time? But she, she believes in them. The thing sticks in my throat. She may be dead already, and here we are floating helpless with no wind at all. Curse on all superstition! She died thinking I deprived her of paradise, I suppose. It shall be the most desperate affair of my life. Decoux remained lost in reflection. He tried to analyze the sensations awaked by what he had been told. The voice of the capataz was heard again. Now, Don Martin, let us take up the sweeps and try to find the Isabels. It is either that or sinking the lighter if the day overtakes us. We must not forget that the steamer from Esmeralda with the soldiers may be coming along. We will pull straight on now. I have discovered a bit of a candle here, and we must take the risk of a small light to make a course by the boat compass. There is not enough wind to blow it out. May the curse of heaven fall upon this blind gulf. A small flame appeared burning quite straight. It showed fragmentarily the stout ribs and planking in the hollow, empty part of the lighter. Dicou could see Nostromo standing up to pull. He saw him as high as the red sash on his waist, with a gleam of a white-handled revolver, and the wooden haft of a long knife protruding on his left side. Dicou nerved himself for the effort of rowing. Certainly there was not enough wind to blow the candle out, but its flame swayed a little to the slow movement of the heavy boat. It was so big that with their utmost efforts they could not move it quicker than about a mile an hour. This was sufficient, however, to sweep them amongst the Isabels long before daylight came. There was a good six hours of darkness before them, and the distance from the harbour to the great Isabel did not exceed two miles. Dicou put this heavy toil to the account of the Capataz's impatience. Sometimes they paused, and then strained their ears to hear the boat from Esmeralda. In this perfect quietness, a steamer moving would have been heard from far off. As to seeing anything, it was out of the question. They could not see each other. Even the lighter's sail, which remained set, was invisible. Very often they rested. Caramba! said Nostromo suddenly, during one of those intervals, when they lolled idly against the heavy handles of the sweeps. What is it? Are you distressed, Don Martin? Dicou assured him that he was not distressed in the least. Nostromo, for a time, kept perfectly still, and then, in a whisper, invited Martin to come aft. With his lips touching Dicou's ear, he declared his belief that there was somebody else besides themselves upon the lighter. Twice now he had heard the sound of stifled sobbing. Senor, he whispered with awed wonder, I am certain that there is somebody weeping in this lighter. 
Decoux had heard nothing. He expressed his incredulity. However, it was easy to ascertain the truth of the matter. "'It is most amazing,' muttered Nostromo. "'Could anybody have concealed himself on board while the lighter was lying alongside the wharf?' "'And you say, and you say it was like sobbing?' asked Decoux, lowering his voice too. "'If he is weeping, whoever he is, he cannot be very dangerous.' Clambering over the precious pile in the middle, they crouched low on the foreside of the mast and groped under the half-deck. Right forward, in the narrowest part, their hands came upon the limbs of a man, who remained as silent as death. Too startled themselves to make a sound, they dragged him aft by one arm and the collar of his coat. He was limp. Lifeless. The light of the bit of candle fell upon a round, hook-nosed face with black moustaches and little side-whiskers. He was extremely dirty. A greasy growth of beard was sprouting on the shaven parts of the cheeks. The thick lips were slightly parted, but the eyes remained closed. Decoux, to his immense astonishment, recognized Senor Hirsch, the hide merchant from Esmeralda. Nostromo, too, had recognized him, and they gazed at each other across the body, lying with its naked feet higher than its head in an absurd pretense of sleep, faintness, or death. End of chapter 7